0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Outlier Academy's Playbook Series, where each week we sit down with an elite performer, from iconic founders to world-renowned investors and best-selling authors, to dive into the ideas, frameworks, and strategies that got them to the top of their field, all in less than 20 minutes. I'm Daniel Scribner, and on the show today I sit down with Ben Boyer, co-founder and CEO of R0, maker of the world's first continuous autonomous disinfection system. And managing director at the early to growth stage VC firm Tanaya Capital. In this episode, we cover the the lessons that Ben has learned as a VC over the last twenty years, first at Lehman Brothers and then building Tanaya Capital. Ben's experience investing in the first wave of Chinese tech companies and the lessons he learned from some of the best Chinese CEOs, how he approached building RZERO using his experience as a venture capitalist, Ben's favorite recent read Healthy Buildings and why he thinks we're on the cusp of a revolution in building technology, and Ben's advice for new founders and investors. You can find the notes and transcript for this episode at outlieracademy.com/slash ninety-seven. It's episode ninety-seven. And you can follow Ben Boyer on Twitter at That's Bjamin999. That's B J A M I N nine Nine Nine. With that, please enjoy my conversation with Ben Boyer. Ben Thank you so much for, for joining me again on Outlier Academy. Um, I'm super excited to dig into some of your background in venture capital and, and try to extract some tactics.
1: <laughs> Happy to tell you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you've been in venture capital for 20 plus years. And I mean, looking back at your resume, all that you've done, um, it's incredible and it's staggering. And, you know, one of the questions I want to ask just to start is what drew you to venture capital early on? And then what kept you involved and excited for 20 years? Because you're in pretty rarefied air.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So I'm not someone that, uh, grew up in a family where, uh, my father or mother was an entrepreneur and a a technologist. My dad actually is technically an entrepreneur. He's a a physician and, and he has his own private practice, but, um, Really, I, I wasn't um, exposed to a lot of technology growing up, but what limited exposure I, I did have to it, I, I really enjoyed. It. And so, you know, I, I felt always sort of drawn to it. Um, I, to be honest about my college existence, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So you got those kids that go to Wharton and uh, they know day one, they're going to move into finance. I had no idea. I'm not even sure I knew what finance was. Um, I went to, I grew up in Los Angeles. I went to Vanderbilt undergrad. And I chose the broadest major they had, uh, which was called Human and Organizational Development, Social Psychology. And the goal was basically to not pigeonhole myself on any uh, in, any one track uh, and give myself the ability to end up in law or business or, or maybe go to grad school and, and, and do something entirely different. And uh, m- during my summers, I was given really good advice to, to, to do internships that um, it's a great way to get exposure to different industries. It looks good when you're applying for jobs. And so my first job, uh, in the summer after my freshman year was, uh, working at the William Morris agency in, uh, in Los Angeles. So I was working at a talent agency. It was the worst job I've ever had. Um, I've never been yelled at more than I was that summer. And all I did was deliver mail, but apparently not, not very well. My second summer after sophomore year, I, I worked at Merrill Lynch and that was interesting. Um, and uh I, you know i i was not uh, as i said i was not coming uh from the experience with with a finance background but they would take flyers on on interns and um i worked in asset management and i started to to really uh learn about the the stock market i wouldn't say i understood it but i i was learning about it and i was really drawn to it i decided in the the next summer uh to work at prudential securities and in another capacity within finance um, and that was a great experience and so I felt like after those two summers, I knew I wanted to get involved with finance in some capacity. I had an excellent college counselor at Vanderbilt uh, who said, you should apply for jobs in investment banking. And I said, okay. And they said, why is that? Um, and, and her comment was, they will take poets like you. And I didn't know what that <laughs> meant. Um, but uh, the investment banking programs, uh, by and large, will hire people from top schools. But Uh, They love the kids from Wharton who have studied finance for four years. But they'll take, you know, call it a quarter of the class from more liberal, either liberal arts schools or uh, majors that that are not finance or accounting or economics. And uh, they have very rich uh, training programs. Um, And so when I was applying uh, for different investment banking jobs, I got uh, a couple of offers. But Lehman Brothers made me an offer uh, where I could move back to Los Angeles, which was a goal of mine. And the group I was put in, uh, as it turns out, was the technology practice. And so um, I started working um, in the in the tech group, um, working around tech companies. This was in late '98 99, nine, 2000. so the, fir- the the bubble, the the orig- the original com bubble, and um, it was incredibly fascinating. There was a ton of work to be done. I learned a tremendous amount, and it was very it felt like a very good fit for my interests. The projects themselves, though, after working on a couple of different IPOs or M&A events, it was uh, very repetitive um, and it felt like I was doing the same thing over and over again. As I started working on some of these uh, IPOs, I would I'd read about the venture backers for the companies. And I thought that was incredibly fascinating that these are uh, organizations that would make investments in the businesses, oftentimes before they even had a product. And I could see what they paid on a per share basis for their shares. Uh, back, you know, a few years earlier, and now what they were worth uh, as the company went public, and I said, "This is, this is really interesting." Roughly, sort of at that time, it was it was the the middle of my second year uh, at Lehman. Lehman Brothers raised a venture capital fund, um, and so Lehman got in the venture business uh, back in in '95, and it was strictly a balance sheet effort, um, and it was very successful. It was a great time to invest, and based on the success of those investments, they raised a venture capital fund with outside limited partners so it wasn't just their money it was other people's and i was uh, fortunate that they were looking for people my year to apply and work in the fund and i was very lucky to get the job and so i moved from los angeles to the bay area in january 2000 so wow like very close to the peak march was the absolute peak but um spent a couple of years working in venture capital in that capacity and it was basically uh, a wonderful map of lessons not not to do. I mean all those a good portion of those businesses failed the the Nasdaq from peak to trough lost 80% of its value. And so I really learned what it means to triage a portfolio and and try to figure out what which of the 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 companies can be saved and how do you how do you help to save them which typically means some very painful cuts. And I came also to realize that My network at Vanderbilt in Los Angeles was not as powerful as the more Bay Area centric one that one of my colleagues had. And uh, he had gone to Stanford for business school. And so I decided to apply for business school in my second year of working in the venture fund and was lucky enough to get into Stanford and left in 2002. My group offered to pay for business school if I came back. And so it was a a pretty easy decision. And uh, eventually I was promoted to partner in that fund. And later we spun the business out and rebranded it Tenaya Capital. Um, and so is t- managing about a billion and a half dollars and my uh, four other partners, there's five of us who are the, on the founding team at Tenaya, we've worked together for over 20 years. So it's a, it's a really, it's been a great experience to effectively grow up with with these people.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. And it's incredible you were able to take that initial experience and turn it in and basically spin it out and turn it into Tenaya Capital. So I know a lot of people who started out their careers in more in public markets, who then at some point make the decision or make the switch into you know being in venture capital. And I feel like it, it for them, depending on how long you've spent studying public markets, you basically have to rewire your entire brain because you have to pay attention to very different signals and think very differently. Did you have that experience and what was it like for you when you were making that transition in the early years? <laughs>
1: yeah. Back in
0: 2002,
1: I, I remember nothing made sense. I mean, you were seeing pre-revenue companies, raise astronomical rounds, and you were seeing pre-revenue companies go public. And this was not the SPAC craze that we have now with all of Rivian and all these auto companies that are getting public without any revenue. And, and I, I am a huge Rivian believer. I don't believe they're worth their current market cap, but I think they're going to be an incredibly successful company. And I, I am a big fan of the company. But ultimately, I did not spend a lot of time you know, sort of thinking about the world from a public versus private perspective largely because of my role. I was supporting. Um, my job was to do due diligence, um, ensure that we were getting all the documents that we needed as part of the process. I would do valuation work, but as I said, it didn't make any sense. I mean, you had public companies with no revenue, and so revenue multiples don't work. But when it came back in 2004, really the, the world had gotten much more to uh, basics and fundamentals. Um, the, the, the dot-com implosion had already transpired. Uh, huge deflation. I think the vintage years in 01, uh, 02, like none of them were very good. So any venture fund that deployed capital in that, that time period did not do well, 2000 probably as well. But ultimately by 04, 05, 06, we started to get back to actually backing companies that had real business models where, uh, well, you're going to value the business on revenue today. There was an extrapolation that could be made about future profits. Um, it might be a decade away, but at the same time, you could understand how the unit economics of this particular business would eventually support something that's that's profitable.
0: Yeah, on that note around vintage cycles, I remember talking with someone recently who was talking about being at a fund that had a vintage 2000, and that basically they were in the top decile, but it was just because they broke even <laughs> when the fund netted out. And just what a staggering fact that is. <laughs> that's- yeah, we have a fund. Uh,
1: it's, a, it's a bad vintage year that's uh, top quartile, and it's like a 7% fund. And so, you know, what we always tell our LPs is, if you're trying to time the market, don't do venture because it's it's impossible. But if you're willing to invest across market cycles, you're going to do great. And so, um, our most recent fund is like 37% net IRR. And so, it all depends on when you get involved, and and obviously things can change quickly.
0: Yeah, and well, and I think to your point, your ability to just in a consistent, disciplined way, continue to allocate capital again and again and again <laughs> regardless of market cycles. And to try to, you know, make sense or try to make wise decisions when you're in a period where you're like, I don't know what is going on, which is what a little bit of the last couple of years have felt like. You know, you talked about obviously going through that bubble experience. One of the questions I wanted to ask was just, there are very few venture investors I know that have been a venture investor across multiple cycles. And so the question I want to ask there is, more than anything, how that's influenced and changed the way you invest. Does that show up anyway in terms of how you make investment decisions? Are you more valuation sensitive? Any of those things?
1: Yeah, no, I think we're in, a, in the third cycle right now. Um, so if you look at the Bessemer Emerging Cloud Index, I think it's off like 35% in the past 90 days. So I think this is the third of, of the cycles I've lived through. So dot-com, the financial crisis, and now this. They're all different. Um, they have different causes. Um, this one is is being driven by inflation. And the prospect of rising interest rates, with the backdrop of the Ukraine and 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 all that's going on from a geopolitical perspective, the financial crisis was massive over leveraging of assets that were not worth you know nearly what people thought. Um, and so each time it's different. But what what I would say you know from an investment perspective that we've learned is um, we've learned how to uh, really you know help help protect the, the portfolio. So we always encourage our, our companies to raise money when they don't need to and really uh, money is oxygen and and to the extent you have it you typically can ride out market cycles the other thing that i've learned is is don't get uh you know too too down about the cycle itself simply because it it won't stay down i mean you know it, it might feel like the world is ending but it is yet to actually happen um and maybe it will happen at some point but um at least in my professional investing career we've always seen things come out the backside um The other thing I tell entrepreneurs uh, is it is a wonderful time to build a company It's when things get harder. And it's a bit counterintuitive. But think about the past couple of years, how difficult it has been to hire, how expensive it is. Um, Inflation is obviously not helping. And as you go through a, a tighter sort of capital environment for private companies, there will be more losses. There will be companies that don't make it. And while that is, I feel horrible for the team and, and the investors, but much more so for the team, uh, the reality is that's healthy. That is a good thing. And and those people can go and join other businesses. And if those other businesses uh, can pay uh, more market wages, uh, they're able to raise less money and do more with less. And and that's how everyone involved with the investment the the, the, the employees, the investors make more money. And, and ultimately, look, we're all wanting to create stuff. Um, you know, some some of us are mission oriented. You don't have to be to be successful. Um, but ultimately, if you're going to ask people to work this hard, you, you would hope at the end of the rainbow, there is some sort of payoff.
0: I want to ask as well about your experience as a board member, because, you know, when I go and look at your background, you've had quite a history as a board observer, then a board member from everything from Eventbrite to multiple interesting Chinese internet companies. And so one of the questions I kind of want to ask two questions there. One was, what have you learned about being a great board member and the difference between a good member and a great board member?
1: <laughs> yeah, I hope I'm I'm a, a decent board member. So what I would say is, Similar to uh, the fact that not, uh, there's no right way to build a company, um, I don't think there is a singular role for a board member to play in a business. I think it depends on what the business needs. Um, I've worked with entrepreneurs that are young and uh, not very experienced. And my role is very different in working with those people than it is with someone who's been around the block. This is their third startup. There is a role in that environment for a board member, um, but you might be spending less cycles late at night trying to calm down someone than you are just looking to help them with recruiting and the like. Um, I think the most important thing a board member can do is is to care. I've had board meetings, not at R0. I have a wonderful board at R0, but I've been involved with startups where things don't go well and the board members uh, from some of the other investors just leave. They stop attending. Um, and I understand there's there is some concept of look, I, my time is valuable, and I'm gonna allocate it where I can have you know the best return. The reason why I don't you know subscribe to that that line of thinking is um, the commitment that the entrepreneur is making to us to try to build something is is real and it is hard. Um, and uh, for every company that fails, there are countless sleepless nights by that team, uh, not just the CEO but but the broader organization trying to make it work. Um, I have yet to, to come uh, you know, across a business where everyone just gives up. Usually you see the, the greatest output in terms of, of people's energy and emotion in the last six months. And so I feel I have an obligation to be there until the end, even if it doesn't work and to do everything in my power to hopefully try to land the plane, to find a home for the, for, for the team and, uh, and potentially a, a reasonable exit. But ultimately, I I think being cognizant of the company, um, the situation with the executives is probably the table stakes to figure out what is required of you. Um, You got to be direct. That's one thing, you know, direct, direct. um, But you also have to have compassion just because everything is hard.
0: Yeah, you made that point really well. I, I think even yeah, that at the end of the day it's about caring. And at the end of the day, you know, I think you, you've said this multiple times in different ways, but the job as an investor or a board member is very different than the job as a founder. And you need to have much more respect for what the founder and the team's going through.
1: I have a portfolio of sixty right now. I I, I you know, in and, and the entrepreneur is a portfolio of one. Um so this is everything.
0: Yeah just very different. I want to ask as well because you've you've been involved in multiple really interesting Chinese internet companies. What has that experience been like? What have you learned by being around those founders and teams and, you know, are there any particular lessons or stories that, you know, you could share that, would, that are interesting?
1: Yeah, so I had a thesis back in in sort of 0506 um around China. And it, you know, I understood how large the consumer market was there. I also knew where they were in terms of broadband penetration and mobile. And it felt like this was going to be a massive, massive uh, market. Historically speaking, uh, our funds did not have the ability to invest outside the U.S. And uh, I put together effectively a, a business plan for going after uh, some of the emerging um, Chinese Internet stories. And our uh, investors in the in the subsequent fund we raised said, sure, but you guys, you, you guys knew. And we, we had the ability to put 20 percent of our fund outside the U.S., Back then, uh, the businesses tended to be uh, analogs of U.S. companies. So Baidu for search, Alibaba for uh, retail and things like that. And um, they tended to be managed uh, and built by Western or Western educated teams. And so board meetings were often in English. I was very comfortable understanding businesses themselves. And and also I could provide a perspective um, around how some of the organizations outside of China built their businesses. Um, so there was uh, an obvious sort of uh, place for uh, someone like myself who doesn't speak Mandarin um, and is not living in China it was incredibly successful um, I'm incredibly fortunate that we we, we did that and um, that there were entrepreneurs in China that would uh, work with someone that had to get on a plane to work with them I was making a lot of trips there I was uh, I was there roughly eight times a year and so it was very hard on my my wife and Wife and daughter, and I had portfolio companies in the U.S. So I just those those years were hard, but it, it worked incredibly well. Um, what's interesting though is that opportunity really closed. Um, right now, I have one investment in China. It's a wonderful company. It's actually led by the CEO of a company I backed. It uh, was a thirty x for for our fund, and it's a great business. And it will it will eventually go public when the public markets uh, calm down a little bit. But um, ultimately, what I saw with China is that opportunity for the Western or Western educated analog business, it went away. Um, The reason being is the companies uh, that started to be built were built by the people that never went to the US. Um, They were someone that was a manager or director at Alibaba or Tencent and had an idea. And uh, they may or may not have spoken English. The other thing is the businesses themselves became very Chinese. And so they were very different. Um, And uh, we were seeing innovation, particularly with mobile, that was, in my opinion, far outpacing what we were seeing in the U.S. Uh, I think the U.S. Should, uh, should start looking for analogs of the Chinese companies. But, but ultimately, it was a moment in time we participated in. It was, it was a, a wonderful thing that we did. But uh, what I learned in that experience was how hardworking the entrepreneurs were there in uh, the teams. There is an expectation that you're working at least six days a week. Um, it is an incredibly high-paced, very intense environment. Um, and I think that's the reason why you've seen so many incredible companies come out of it.
0: Yeah. You know, as someone that I haven't observed that myself, I've heard that obviously anecdotally a lot. Is that because people are, they feel like this is truly an incredible opportunity and so they're willing to do anything and everything to get it? Where does that come from?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think despite the fact this is a, a technically a communist country, it's capitalism. I think people have seen the extreme wealth creation that's happened there. I feel like it can happen on a much bigger scale there just because of how large um, the consumer market is. So think about the consumer facing businesses. They can become bigger. And so I think that's what's driving it. I think by and large, culturally, again, and, and I'm, I'm not trying to extrapolate. It was just based on my experience with a handful of companies. The people I work with uh, were, were hardworking. Uh, I imagine you learn that from home. I imagine, uh, you know, there's there's an importance placed on on, on academics and education reinforced by by hard work and so um again i i can't speak to china i can speak about my experiences in china um but the entrepreneurs themselves uh and the teams that they built really were were willing to to lay it on the line to go build something
0: yeah okay i want to ask just a couple closing questions and one is as someone that's been doing this 22 years what is your advice or what would be your advice to someone just getting started as a venture capitalist today and so maybe there's an they're an associate maybe they're a partner maybe they're an angel just starting to write their own checks what what would you tell them or what do you think would be helpful for them to hear
1: (laughs) yeah i don't think you can um uh over network i think it's you know it is a very much a club and and that's good and bad but there's a a lot of flow of information that happens um amongst friends and so Uh, to the extent you can build a network of people uh, to share information, I think you're at an advantage uh, to others. The other is make yourself useful. This is, I'd say, uh, you know, probably the thing that had been uh, most effective for me in trying to win competitive deals is understand what the entrepreneur, the CEO is spending cycles on and try to help them with it. If they're looking for a VP of engineering, go look for their VP of engineering. Even if you don't find the exact fit, if you can come to the table with two or three ideas and explain to that individual why you think they'd be a fit, you're improving that as a board member, you're not just going to sit there and listen. And so I'd say those are the, the, the two things.
0: Yeah. I want to ask quickly about favorite books. You know, I know, well, I feel like there's no VC I I know that doesn't have the top couple of business books that they either have read themselves or that they give out to founders. What has resonated with you? And do you have any books that you commonly give out to founders, give out to teams?
1: Yeah, what we're giving out, right? This is, again, our zero hat, not Tanaya. We're we're giving out a book called Healthy Buildings right now, um, which is incredible. And there's a book I read uh, by Michael Lewis called The Premonition. And again, these are both R0 specific, but uh it it really profiles a woman named Dr. Charity Dean, uh who's truly a hero of mine. I won't give it away, it's worth reading. If anyone cares about the pandemic and some of the signals that we saw and, and really how policy works at the state and, and even at the federal level, it's an incredible read. Like anything Michael Lewis does, it's a it's a fun read. Um, you know, I, I there there's obviously good to grade and and There's tons of books I've read that are business books, but really my, where my head is at right now is so R0 that I'm focused on everything related to, uh, you know, uh, the, the human immune response, uh, how, how to make buildings healthy, the importance of doing so, and really trying to understand the pandemic, both what happened and, and also from a historical perspective, um, you know, really how could we have done better? Um, because that, that is really why, uh, what, you know, what I'm spending my, my time and energy on.
0: Well, and I think there's almost no one that's not thinking about that, because one, we've had pandemics before. It clearly didn't change a trajectory of this one. <laughs> so we need to get better in the future.
1: We do. And, and other than, um, you know, on uh, in terms of uh, the vaccines, which, you know, are amazing. And, and I, I think one of the great, great scientific events that have ever happened in, in human history was how quickly we could, we could create something that works so well um but but aside from that we are managing COVID the same way we did the spanish flow um it's it's hand washing it's mass uh, it's chemical disinfectants and it's more ventilation and that to me that to me is amazing that think about what has happened in every other industry i mean at that time americans were driving uh model t's it's brutal and now we, think. exactly <laughs> it's, it's, brutal. it's just shocking
0: so. yeah yeah it's brutal okay last question what is your definition of success today, and this is you know kind of super meta level, and you can clearly you know weave r zero into that and how has that definition changed over time?
1: It's hard. I think a lot of my emotion is is in and time and energy is being spent on r zero.
0: Success here
1: is ultimately helping to reduce sick days um, and for us to be able to do that, we need a large we need a lot of devices um, we need clinical work um, that shows. In this environment we were actually able to do it and we're doing that and if i can uh create that body of evidence and, and prove that our systems do exactly what I'm, I'm confident they do but we we need to go through the process i will be incredibly proud because at the end of the day for a fraction of the cost of giving employees stand-up desks we can make it so that when you go to the office you're you're, you're not getting sick as often common uh, cold and influenza Um, And if I can do so while improving uh, the sustainability of my customers, I feel like I've done, you know, I've really pushed the ball forward against two dimensions, human health and the environment. They both matter tremendously to me. And we know that that's the mission and the path we're on. And so uh, if R0 is successful in five or 10 years, people consume a lot less chemicals um, and instead of just uh, trying to um, uh, solve ventilation with uh, central HVAC, we're using some proven technologies like upper room UVGI and far UV. Um, I'll feel like these years of, of strain and, and the sacrifice I'm asking my wife and daughter to make um, were hopefully worth it. I hope they view, the, view it the same way.
0: Yeah. Well, I think you're clearly on the path to doing that. I think that's a perfect note to end on. So for anyone listening, you can learn more about R0, which is what Ben is working on now. He's been working on it for the last two years at r0.com. And you can also find Ben on Twitter at B-J-A-M-I-N 999. And again, we'll link to all this in the show notes, but Ben's written a bunch of um, really great stuff on Medium that we'll link to as well, too. Thank you so much for the time, Ben. Really Thanks. appreciate it. Have a good day. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to everything we discussed as well as the notes and transcript for this episode at outlieracademy.com slash 97. For more from Ben Boyer, listen to episode 94, where he joins me on our Founder Spotlight series to go deep on how he built and scaled the world's first autonomous continuous disinfection system, also called R0, to more than $40 million in revenue in its first year of operation, as well as the fascinating history of UVC light for disinfection and why 120 years after its discovery, it's still underutilized for cleaning and disinfection. You can also find more incredible interviews with the founders of Level, Superhuman, 8sleep, Rally, Common Stock, and so many others, as well as best-selling authors and the world's smartest investors at outlieracademy.com. You can also now find us on YouTube at youtube.com slash outlieracademy. On our channel, you'll find all of our full-length episodes as well as our favorite clips from every episode, including this one. So please go to YouTube and subscribe. And thank you so much for listening. We'll see you right here next week on Outlier Academy.